Hello and welcome to Gatekeepers, a podcast featuring top members of the entertainment industry talking about their lives and experience in the art of filmmaking. I am your host, Isaac Simpson. This episode is a long interview with Bonnie Curtis. Bonnie is an American film producer whose credits include Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, and AI. I know, huge films. And her upcoming movie is Last Days in the Desert, which stars Ewan McGregor as both Jesus and the devil. So there's a lot to unpack here. Bonnie is best known as being one of Steven Spielberg's most trusted producers. How does a girl from Texas come to Hollywood and become a producer for one of the greatest filmmakers of all time? Well, you will have to listen to the interview to find out about that. She was very reluctant at first when she was asked to interview for the job. She said no at first, and then she insisted on meeting them even when his people told her that that's not how it worked. Bonnie is absolutely the kind of person that sticks to her guns in that way, and it's very interesting to hear how that sort of integrity guided her career and got her to where she is now. This podcast is brought to you by Collaborator.com. Are you a video professional that needs work, or are you a brand that needs video messaging? Collaborator is the online marketplace that connects companies to video professionals. Sign up today. Go to Collaborator.com. That's Collaborator with one L. Without further ado, let's get to Bonnie Curtis. Uh, so, are we, we're, we're on? I was born. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so tell us the exact <laughs> entire story. Um, how does a uh, girl from Texas, Dallas? Yes. From Dallas, um, find her way to producing some of the biggest movies in America? Um, wow. I've never been asked a question exactly like that. Uh, I, I mean, the, for me, it starts with um, passion for film. I was uh, 10 years old, and I remember it very clearly. And I was uh, home in Dallas, and the Oscars were on television, which my parents watched every year. And let me pause a second. Where should I just? Oh yeah, it's just a conversation between. Right. You. Okay. Right. So yeah. I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, so I was I was home in Dallas one evening. I was 10 years old, and I was watching the Oscars, which my folks had on every year, and. Um, I remember it, the, the, the very, very lauded and nominated film that year was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was not a movie I had seen. It was rated R. I was 10. But I kept seeing these people get up and win these awards. And I was asking my folks, what is this? And I, I think, in hindsight, that was when I connected that this thing that I loved so much, because I had started watching movies when I was five, you know, mom and dad took me to see Sleeping Beauty, you know, in the theater. Um, but I connected that this was actually a job. Oh, so there's someone who does the art and someone who does the wardrobe and all, you know, and I started to piece that together. And, um, you know, this before VCRs, before, obviously before the internet, and uh, I can remember on Sunday morning getting the Sunday paper and marking the movies that I was going to watch that week. 
that was the only way you could watch them. And, you know, I would see like some Like It Hot, which was my mother's like all-time favorite movie, but it didn't come on till 2 a.m. So I would set my alarm and I would get up and I would watch some Like It Hot because you couldn't record it, you know, all that. So it, the obsession, my, my folks say that they figured out fairly early that there was an obsession there that wasn't going to go away. And so they started sort of helping me, um, not sort of, definitely helping me, you know, feed it, you know, like we got the VCRs immediately. My father and I would go up to Videoville on Preston Road and rent, you know, a whole weekend's worth of movies and, or I'd go to the theater. And that's when I started to sort of catch up on like all of Martin Scorsese's films, you know, all of Coppola's films, you know. I, uh, and I just knew I'm going, I'm going to work in film. So when I graduated from college, I, I was um, raised in a religion called the Church of Christ. And so I attended private schools. I went to Dallas Christian. I went to Abilene Christian University. I had a great experience, really good friends, no film department. So I had a couple of people say to me, and I still tell uh, people I'm mentoring this, just learn to read and write. <laughs> You know, learn to carry on a conversation, read and write, solve problems. And I was a journalism major, which seemed, and I meet a lot of, uh, in the film business, I'm in the entertainment business at, as a whole, I meet a lot of journalism majors, a lot of history, English, you know, people that are just really studying where we've been and where we're headed. And um, so that's what I did. I majored in journalism and I moved out here in uh, 88. Oh, I'm old. <laughs> May of 1980, no, 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 August of 1988. I backpacked through Europe right out of college because I knew, you know, like, oh man, my life's gonna be over, yeah. I gotta go backpack now. Best thing I ever did. And. Um, and really saw the world, you know, we went to like 15 countries and 68 cities. That, and I, I, all of this ties together because I think what I would love to express to young people who want to break into the film business is don't rush too quickly, you know, really experience because those experiences I had traveling were invaluable to me in my early work. It set me apart. You know, when I had been to Eastern Europe in concentration camps before Steven Spielberg had been, when we did a location scout for Schindler's List and I could say, I've been here. You've been here? Yeah, I was 16 and my folks brought me, or I was, you know, just out of college. And, and that was, he was pulling me right next to him, you know? So those sort of experiences, um, including my religious upbringing, all incredible assets for me that set me apart in, um, in the entertainment business. So that's, I was always coming here. It was not, not gonna happen. And I just got my first gig, like everybody does. I just sent my resume out, I cold called. I got a temp job um, uh, answering phones at Disney through a friend, my dear friend from Texas, Jeff Nip, knew one person over at Disney, went and met her, and they needed someone to answer the reception desk. And there I was. Boom! <laughs> Story. And then how did, how did Spielberg find you from that? 
Well, the and he would tell you that he found me. Actually, no, no. No, no, I don't know whatever. No, no, he would he would tell you I found him. Yeah. That he he actually always loves saying that. Thanks for finding me. Yeah. Um I worked that was that was an interesting moment and I think also in in telling it as an anecdote there's some valuable uh valuable tools for people who are trying to break into the film business. Um I worked for a year and a half at Disney. I got this job answering phones at reception. They needed someone to fill in uh, for two weeks in what they call a staff assistant position. And I, don't, I actually don't even know how they're set up over there now, but in the old days, there was a physical production department that did budgets and schedules and um, you know crew research when they had decided in the creative production department that they wanted to make a movie. And one of the just PA, production assistant positions, that person was on vacation. So they pulled me off of this temp answering phones desk into that office, a gentleman named Bruce Hendricks, who's still making movies, great guy, also from Texas, um, working with him and his assistant, Sharon Dean, who basically helped jumpstart my entire career. She gave my resume to a lovely woman named Lisa Needenthal, who's still in the business, who worked for a lovely man named Sam Mercer, who's still in the business. <laughs> All very prolific filmmakers. And uh, they, a full-time position opened up. So I'm, I'm temp reception desk, I'm filling in for someone who's on uh, vacation, and then I get a full-time gig, still as a PA. But I get the gig because I'm there. You know, I, 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 you know, that's how the entertainment business works. It's like nothing, 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 nothing. Boom, here we go. And if you're in the door sweeping floors and you have a brain, I, trust me, I'm turning and hiring you before I'm getting on the phone or going through a resume file. What am I? I'm like living in the 70s. <laughs> I was just going through a resume file. Mm, this be, is interesting. Be like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. Click it. Scroll, scroll. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I uh, I went in and got this full time gig, and I'd been doing that for a little over a year. Uh, my boss Lisa had gone to work at Showtime, and um, I had moved into her position. Like two weeks after that promotion, I get this phone call one day, just out of the blue. And I'm like, you know, Sam Mercer's office. They say, yeah, uh, Bonnie, this is Kathleen Miranda, woman that worked with Spielberg for on and off for years. Listen, Stephen is looking for a new assistant, and we were wondering if you might be interested in interviewing for the job. And I knew Kathleen, we had worked together on a project at Disney. It, that's too long-winded a story to go into, but they had <laughs> built a new division called Hollywood Pictures for a while, and we were part of that. And Kathleen had worked in post-production. And... Uh, and I said, oh, Kathleen, and I knew her. I was like, oh, Kathleen, thank you so much for the call. I, can't, I'm, I just got promoted here, and I'm really, I love my boss, and I can't, I just can't do it, and I hung up. Wow. So the guy who, uh, who I had hired to work with me, Jim Limley, who is a recurring character in my story, <laughs> He came walking in my office. He said, what, what, what was that? And I said, well, Steven Spielberg's looking for a new assistant. And they, they called to see if I was interested. But I can't do that to Sam. And Jim was like, are you insane? He said, Bonnie, that just fell in your lap. 
You're, you're from the Bible Belt. You believe in stuff like that. What are you, what are you doing? I was like, really? He was like, yes. Now, my, the truth is I love Spielberg. I mean, I particularly love him now because I know him. I, I would go see his movies. I was not a ferocious Steven Spielberg fan. I, you know, I was more, I was watching James Brooks movies. I was watching Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. I was watching Fabulous Baker Boys. Like that was more my sort of zone of film and, and Coppola. Um, and I was going with the world and seeing E.T. and Raiders and all opening night, you know, long lines, long lines around the movie theater, remember? Yeah. No, you don't. How old are you? 30. Okay, well, maybe a yeah, one, yeah. one or two. But I no, am. I remember, I remember Jurassic Park. There, there was you lines, go. You know, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. And I, that phenomenon that he created, yeah. I was so. But if, if you were going to give me, you know, a weekend to watch movies, I was going to rent, you know, Clute. And I was just going to, just very different type of films. So I think partially in hindsight, that was one of the reasons I didn't just like, you know, well, it wasn't Jane Fonda calling, yeah. you know, but uh, it made sense what Jim said. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, at least go meet him. So I called back my friend Kathleen and I said, I'll, I'll, I'll come meet him. And, uh, and she said, okay, well, you're going to meet Kathy Kennedy first. Who ran Amblin at the time and, you know, became my wonderful mentor. But Kathy, so I went had a dentist appointment or something and I went and met Kathy on the Warner Brothers lot they were filming Arachnophobia which her husband Frank Marshall was directing and um, I met Kath and she was great loved her immediately and then I went back to work and they called and offered me the job and I said they said well, we want to offer you the job can you start in two weeks and I said well I get I need to meet Stephen well, no, that's not, that's not really how we do things around here. You know, you'll come over and start the job. And I said, I, please, with all due respect, I'm about to quit a job here to do this. I can't work for a man I've never met. And he should not want to hire someone he's never met. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. You know, what if he doesn't, what if I remind him of some girl who broke his heart in high school or something? And day one, he's like, ah, ah, she's out of here. So, and apparently I said, what if he doesn't like the way I smell? I don't remember saying that. They say I said that. So, I'm from Texas. You know, I say, these things come flying out. Yeah. So, I said, uh, you know, I need to meet him. And they said, well, hang on. And they called me back in a few minutes. They said, okay, you're going to meet him at this point in time and be here, you know, blah, blah. So, I went and I met him. And I just, you know... He's great. I adore him. And we had a rapport immediately and got along. And I felt very comfortable with him. And uh, he, what I, what I remember about the resume, the resume, the interview, is that he went down almost humorously, went and asked me about every single line on my resume. Mm. Every single, so Bonnie, what exactly is Miss Abilene Christian University? <laughs> And I was just like, you are funny. Yeah. So I told him. And the, he says that the secret to my success with him was that when I came in that room, I was a bigger Kate Capshaw fan than a Steven Spielberg fan. Yeah. And I really was. I loved Space Camp and Windy City. I was a huge Capshaw fan. So 
he uh, hired me, thank goodness, and you know, the real drama began, you know, as far as my professional life went. But I, ignorance is bliss, I didn't know, you know, I, it, I was 24 years old when we went over to make Schindler's List, and, and when I look back at the, in hindsight, when I look back at the big turning points in my career, I had nothing to do with them. I was working, I was doing my best, I was showing up, I was getting the job done in the best way I knew how, I was trying not to screw up too much, but the big moments were because something else happened that wasn't in my control. Um, the big moment for me, I mean, I came in and we, I worked for him for a year before we made Hook. Hook was the first set I'd ever really been on, except the ones I'd snuck onto, you know, as a kid. Because you were just doing normal, like, personal assistant work for him? Up well, before, he, like you know, he was running Amblin at the time, so he had an office staff. Um, we had two, three assistants, two and then a PA, and most of the personal work was handled by a third assistant that was at the house, and it was, um, I have to say the way they have it set up is pretty great because I, of course I was sometimes dealing with, oh, you have to go see your kids do this or see, you know, be, be at this dinner at this time, but somebody else had scheduled and handled all that. I just was in the loop. I was really dealing with work. Mm. I was dealing with whatever hat he was wearing in that moment, I was assisting that hat was the way I used to say it. I haven't said those words in a very long time. If he was producing an animation, you know, we had an animation company over in London. If he was producing American Tale, or, but then I was in the middle of that. If he was working on scripts for ER, which he was very, you know, Stephen, he didn't have a credit on ER, but he was one of the executive producers, he and Michael Crichton. Oh, wow. And so he was in the day-to-day -day with John Wells of that, very involved. So, and Stephen is such a busy man and such a workaholic that you are given in that chair, whether you're 23 with no experience or 35 with a lot of experience, you're given an enormous amount of responsibility and you're either gonna do okay or you're just gonna blow it. So he just assumes uh, capability and if it turns out to not be the case, well then he'll figure it out. But he, he doesn't have time to like, now are you sure you can handle this? Now let me tell you how to do this. I'm not gonna hold your hand like that. He's gonna keep going and you are gonna keep up. Yeah. And it's, and I did. I, I'm as big a workaholic as he is. So we, you know, I can remember pulling some all-nighters. Um, when I first came into that office, I couldn't even get my, um, I couldn't even get my feet under the desk I'm having bra issues, I apologize. <laughs> when I first came into that office, I couldn't even get my feet under the desk. There were just stacks and stacks and stacks of uh, unanswered questions, wow. memos. And, and I, remember, uh, I remember thinking, you know, no wonder, you know, he needs someone in here. And I, the, the win of that was that I got to read everything. You know, the last two years of the man's life were stacked all around. And, um, and I watched, there were some of his movies I hadn't seen. There was a 40-year-old birthday video all his friends had made him. There was a 
another short film that he, two short films he had made when he was a teenager that I watched. Like I really spent, um, I spent some months educating myself about this human I was going to work for. By the time we got to the, and he, Kate Capshaw and him had just uh, moved in together. They'd had their first child together, Sasha. Um, and she was born the day I started working for him. So it was sort of like uh, out yeah. the gate, we were, we were feeling good. Um, but I just, uh, I just worked really hard. And then it was about a year into that, that Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall left to form their own company. And that was difficult on everybody. And I was the new kid in town and we went over to Poland and made Schindler's List. Wow. So, but again, you know, that didn't happen because I did anything. That happened because Kathy and Frank, they'd been with him for a couple of decades. They wanted to go do their own, not a couple of decades, but about a decade. They wanted to go do their own thing. And um, so that, that, again, it was just that thing that happened and I just, you know, I can just remember being on the set on Schindler's List looking around going, well, that's not gonna get done. I better, that's gonna be a problem. And I would run and handle, whether it was casting or something, a scene that had to be shot the next day that wasn't ready. But I spent a lot of my time helping him run this stuff back home. Like I would go to my hotel room, remember fax machines? You know, and I would get faxes all night from LA and I'd be on my satellite phone. You know, it's a wonder I'm not dead. But I would have like a satellite phone like this with, with Amblin for four hours every night after we'd shot for 14 hours that day dealing with the business back home, whether it was like Casper or Flintstones or, you know, animation also or anything on television. He just, he was running Amblin and all that production at the same time that he was directing. So yeah, that was a lot. And he's also, Stephen also has a, a huge, like with the American Film Institute or with the Directors Guild or with, you know, he's such an icon you know, that he'll be helping Warner Brothers plan their big anniversary celebration. You know, he's a, he's a phenomenal producer, too. So there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of front row seats to some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. But in hindsight, you realize how much you learn. During it, you're just trying to keep your... Keep it going. Keep it going, yeah. Well, you mentioned that both of you guys are workaholics in your own, your own way. And obviously, working hard is something that's important. Um, but you also said that a lot of it is, even as hard as you're working, it's not necessarily things that you are doing. It's almost just showing up is... I think a lot of it is showing up. You know, um, even people in positions like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, those are probably my two best examples of those are probably two of the most successful powerful humans I know in the film business they will tell you it's luck and timing that they're they're showing up every day they're enormously talented they're they're tapped into something that is reaching a lot of people you know but they're, they're going into the office every day and they're working all day long, every day. And um, stuff's falling through for them every day. 
you know, that project is the one that they can't figure out how to get made, you know. Stephen had been developing Schindler's for, I'm going to get this wrong, but I know it was more than like 11 years. I mean, there was a, a long, long, long journey. There was a period where Scorsese was going to develop, was going to direct Schindler's and Stephen was going to direct Cape Fear. Mm. And then they this ended up swap, swapping that. I mean, there was always, AI is another phenomenal example of a movie Stephen just couldn't figure out how to get made. You know, they, he and Kubrick had, had both worked on it for years and years and years to try to figure out a way that Warners would make that movie. So... And is all that on spec? I mean, is all that work that you're saying that, for example, that he was doing on ER, is he getting paid for that or is that just he's working on the project? He, a lot of work he does is on spec. A yeah. ton of work Stephen does is on spec. Now, on ER, I don't, I actually don't, Stephen was bringing home a paycheck on ER once it was on air. I don't even recall how much, um, but he was paid as an executive producer on oh, that. Okay. Um, once it was on air, up until the time it was on air, they weren't. But he was getting some. There was a deal with with uh, with Warner's and with NBC on that. But um, but he get, he's paid scale on his features. I mean, that's famous famous you know knowledge. Uh, famous fact about Stephen is he doesn't he doesn't want to burden the budget with some big fee. What he's done. And but he's learned it all the hard way. You know, he did movies like Jaws and E.T. that made so much money for Universal, but he didn't have the yeah. deal on these movies that he then learned to get the back end. To get the back end. Yeah. Like you don't have to pay me up front. I don't need it. Let's put it on the screen. But if the film is as successful, I seem to be hitting a chord here. Yeah. If the film is successful, <laughs> let's all share in it. Yeah. Let me have some of the percentage. That's yeah, right. That's very smart. It's great. And he, you know, I make independent, I've been making independent film now for a, about a decade. For what we talked, same reason we talked about earlier. Creatively, that's just where the scripts are and the stories are that I want to get out of bed in the morning and tell. But I really learned the business aspect of independent film from the way that Steven functions. When we, when we would get a script that he felt was gonna be his next movie, he would literally turn to us before any budgets had been done, schedules had been done, anything. He would give us a budget number and an amount of days that he wanted to shoot it in. He had so much experience that he knew, you know, I want to do this one for 65 million and I want to shoot it in 65 days and I'm making it up. Yeah. And then, and you would be like, really? But then when you would go and budget it and schedule it, you'd start to see, oh, okay, this is, this is the shape he's seeing. And then you would go and go, okay, well, we're going to have to cut this, this, and this to fit it into this box. And, uh, and he would dutifully roll up his sleeves and we would get there. I cannot remember one instance where we didn't come in exactly on that number and exactly those days. The, actually, I'm lying. The only one I can remember is Hook. Hook was an issue for a bunch of things we weren't in control of. Um, and we went over schedule and over budget on Hook, which drove him crazy because he's so responsible. But Surely not all directors 
That's got to be just him. I mean, like, not just him, but I, do you think they're all like that? Or No, they're not all Some like that. Some of them are probably Notoriously yeah. not like that. Notoriously <laughs> over-schedule, over-budget, studio executives be damned, this is my movie. Mm-hmm. You know, no. Yeah. He, you know, and he, there's famous stories about Stephen um, when they were filming Always, which was before I started working for him, you know, the studio was really after him. They wanted to see dailies, they wanted to see dailies, they wanted to see dailies. And so Stephen filmed a joke set of dailies with Richard Dreyfuss and John Goodman acting like Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise from Rain Man. <laughs> and he sent him the dailies. So he'll play, like, I'm very responsibly spending your money. We're doing exactly what I agreed to. Let me. But just let me. Let me make the movie. Yeah. Let me make the movie. And they they don't. Nobody complains. But it's uh, so there's a little bit of that good natured fun. Yeah. One of my favorite moments uh, with Stephen, and it's a story with the late Robin Williams, who was and is one of my all time favorite people. We were filming Hook. And these guys have such a good sense of humor. Three workaholics right there, Robin, Dustin, and Steven, you know, on set every day, having so much fun and working really hard, trying to get it right, trying to get it right, trying to get it right, unsure of themselves the whole time, but just go, go, go. And there's a break in filming and, uh, and is it Robin that starts it? I think Dustin starts it. Dustin says, hey, I got an idea for a great teaser trailer we can put out there in the theaters. And so he says, ladies and gentlemen, from the actor who brought you Ishtar. And then Robin comes running around and gets in camera and goes, and Popeye. (laughs) And so Steven starts climbing over the monitor to get in front of the camera. And he leans in and goes, and 1941. (laughs) So I just remember sitting at the monitor going, oh my gosh. You know, this could be a disaster. Yeah. But um, having a good sense of humor about themselves at the same, you know, at the same time working, working so hard. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. It doesn't. How much, so I, I, what I'm interested in is um, some of that, like you're saying he's very responsible. It seems like a lot of people who are successful are very responsible, very workaholic, uh, Ask, um, but what we're seeing now is this repeated pattern where, like what happened with Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. there's a new director who's maybe going a little bit too quickly, right? And the studio reaches down and picks them up after they have only one tiny indie film, right? Mm-hmm. It happened with Monsters and then Godzilla, Fantastic Four, you know, Chronicle of these young guys, Jurassic World, yeah, and Jurassic, exactly Jurassic World, same thing. Um, and the studios, in those cases, there's the artist and there's the studio. And it seems like sometimes the artist blames the studio for not letting them have their vision. Mm-hmm. And the studio blames the artist for, for not being like Steven and not being having their stuff really like on lock. I would love to hear your opinion of those situations. Well, it, it, I have some comments. Um, Steven is, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of film. He's also an extremely good businessman. And it is the film business. So I think that uh, 
the match, matchmaking of these younger directors with coming into these huge studio franchises, sometimes it's a match and sometimes it's not. And I don't think that a director can expect a studio to give them hundreds of millions of dollars and leave them alone. It's not gonna happen. So balancing listening respectfully, uh, the artistry of taking studio notes and applying them in a way where they feel heard and respected and, and respecting them. <laughs> I mean, you know, for, for lack of a better way to put it, like some of the people I respect most in this business, Tom Rothman, um, Amy Pascal, uh, Stacy Snyder, Donna Langley, these people are smart people who really have a sense of you know, what it takes to make a hit movie. So you're a fool to not listen to them. But there's an art to it and a skill set to it. And, and not everybody has it. I mean, and trust me, I, I, I'm not sure I do either. You know, there's um, one of the reasons I love independent film is you get to make the movie you want to make. And now you're making about a tenth of the money that you might make in the, in the other scenario, but you get to make the movie you wanna make. And there is something so liberating and wonderful to that. When you're working with a studio, you know, the, what I used to always say is, half the time I felt more like a politician and a tour guide mm. than a filmmaker. And when we made a Minority Report at Fox, and that was when we were working with Rothman, and Rothman's great, I mean, he's, He's always going to tell you what he feels, but he's a smart guy. And Stephen really liked Rothman, and he was one of the few studio executives we'd actually let come on the set. <laughs> but we—it um, was still there were politics, and there was a lot of conversation and meetings and things that you had to sit through. I think one of the reasons Tom Cruise continues to be so successful, first of all, workaholic. 100% works constantly, is very serious about it, dedicated to it. No better actor that you can work with. He just shows up, knows what he's doing, such a professional, so prepared. During marketing and publicity, exactly the same. You know, shows up to meetings. I'll never forget on Minority Report, and I know Tom's had his bumps, Lord knows we all have, but. Uh, but I remember on Minority Report, we walked into a meeting at Fox and all the execs are there. And Tom leans up to the table and he goes, okay, I've probably only got a handful of these left. You know, just so immediately a realist. Mm -hmm. yeah. Probably only got a handful of these left. You tell me where to be and when to be there. I will show up. I will give it 110%. And I'm ready. And I literally was like, well, the meeting's done. Yeah, that's all we needed to know. That's yeah. all we need to know. And you just want to hug and kid, like, yeah. thank goodness. And it can be a real challenge when you have an actor who is adverse to publicity. You're literally, and I dealt with it big time. And you're literally just like taking yourselves through, you know, months of manipulation to try to get somebody to show up for one interview. It's not worth it. Yeah. And trust me. You go to the next project and you're trying to decide between two actors, guess which one you're going to go after. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely, um, 
I, I would ha it would be hard to judge each of those films and those young filmmakers and the studios they were made at and the franchise and what really went down, what really happened. Um, but that for that to work well, I think there has to be such a match of personalities that only experience, I mean, and even experience you screw up, but there really can't be a weak link to that. Like I think one of the reasons Jurassic World worked so well is because the director of it was such a Spielberg fan and such a fan of those movies and such a student of those movies and came in and was really trying to honor the franchise and had Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg helping him through that journey with the studio. I don't know all the intricacies of all those other examples you've given, but I would hazard to guess that there were times when that filmmaker was alone against a system that he had never encountered before. Um, yeah. And every studio is a different animal. For, is there such a thing though as being, I mean, what I, you said earlier, I'm going to try and draw these things together and it might not work. So it won't. Like, <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Let me see it won't. Um, I, it's just what you have me thinking about is, you said a really interesting thing earlier about you needed that time in Europe to sort of develop yourself as a... Human. Human, right? And in order to make good art, you also have to kind of be a human. You can't be too distant away from that or else you lose like the human touch. I mean, unless you're an absolute genius who could just somehow, you know. Lived previous lives. Exactly, maybe. yeah, yeah. yeah. Who maybe, maybe He's somebody, gotten it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, maybe Steven Spielberg like is that, is that person. But can you be too dedicated? Like what was also cool about your story is that, you know, when Spielberg came knocking, you kind of thought about it and you said like maybe I should do the right thing maybe I should you know mm -hmm. you you really maintained frame which is incredibly impressive because I think probably 99% of people in that situation would be like yep <laughs> up and run out <laughs> run out the door so I, that probably added a lot of respect you know so I guess what I'm asking is it seems like at times you are very like a workaholic and very politics and conciliatory, but also at times you have like acknowledged the importance of stepping back from that and being a, a person. You have to stay on your own path. So what I'm saying is can you be too conciliatory? Oh. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, It is, you have to pick your battles, and it is, um, gosh, like so many stories went into my head that I imploded on that. Um, here's the thing, couple of, couple of thoughts. You don't, it, this is my advice, don't do things that, that don't be the human putting up blockades. In any scenario, if you're offered, um, if you are offered, if you're one of these young filmmakers and you're offered the second movie in a huge franchise and you've only done one little independent film, say yes. Say yes so fast 
that it, it, they did, they, they're like, what'd you say? I said yes, I just said it really fast. <laughs> then ask for help. Don't think that your crap smells good. Yeah. It doesn't. You're really lucky. And the worst thing that you can do is screw this up. It's the worst thing you can do. So they honor you with this great gift, because it's a gift. And then you've got to sit back and go, okay, why did they offer me this? What did they love about my first movie? And why do they think I'm right for this? You know, is it just to save money? Like, are they just trying not to pay some big guy? That, did 50 people in town already pass? And they're like, ah, we'll just guide this guy. Well, if that's the case, then I better let them guide me. And then I'm going to pick like two or three moments in the movie where I'm just going to blow the roof off. And, and I need help. I need help. I need a great crew. I need a DP that knows what he's doing. You know, like, I think it's, they've honored me with this, I need help. And, um, and I think uh, what a lot of people do, what I notice a lot of younger people doing is, well, you know, so-and-so wants you to meet with them. Oh, well, man, I don't know if I should meet with that person because then this will happen and that will happen and then what if that happens and then I've got that other project and that's a competing project, but then what if that person wants to sue me and, then, and, I'm, got, and I'm five minutes into 73 theoretical things that may or may not happen on a Tuesday in June <laughs> and I'm like, why don't you just go have the meeting? Walk through the door. I mean, I like the gatekeeper name you guys use because what I... There are doors I can open for people. I can't do anything after that. There is nothing I can do. So if I, you know, make an introduction or send a resume or do something, it's completely up to the human that I've just given the assist to. I can't do anything else. And in fact, I don't want to do anything else. Nobody did anything else for me, you know? Yeah. And actually that's, I don't want to misportray what I'm trying to say there. I. It has to be up to the individual. I have a, a, a three-time rule when young people are coming after me. I get hundreds of emails a week from a lot of people who want to try to break into the business. And you know very, very, very quickly if it's actually someone who wants to break into the business or they just had a momentary thought where they thought they might want to break into the business. <laughs> And it is amazing how quickly people just disappear on you. Um, how can you tell? How, how do you? Well, know? one example, and now I'm very partial to Texans and people that, have, that are kids of friends I went to school with or went, go to schools I went to or love the same movies I love, whatever. But it is amazing when you ask a lot of young people today, I ask them what movies they've seen how many movies they haven't seen. Yeah. I mean, I was like, have you seen Gone with the Wind? Have you seen, I mean, I'm just pulling out the, like, Lawrence of Arabia. Well, Sound of Music? <laughs> Citizen Kane, you know, I'm just really, no, 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 no. But I love making these little YouTube videos. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, okay. So, yeah. I'm gonna email you a list of 10 films that I want you to see, and I want you to call me, I want you to email me after you've seen them and we'll talk about it. Yeah disappear yeah gone 
Or wow, you, that's amazing. Or you sit with the kid who's seen them all. Yeah, yeah. He's seen them all. He wants to talk about it. Yeah. He, and I will go the distance for that kid. Yeah. I will, like, it, it is because it's not an easy job. You have to love it. You have to love film so much and be so passionate about storytelling. It is so hard to get a movie made, even at the Spielberg level. It is so difficult, and it requires an enormous amount of time with very understanding people as your friends and family. And, um, and it's so fun. I mean, we just made, and, and it's more and more challenging, and I think it'll come back around and it'll be a boon again, but we, um, we just made a movie for a million bucks this last spring. And we did it because we love making movies. You know, and it's so, um, our business model is uh, set up with foreign sales estimates, um, which has become a real challenge because they're not giving high estimates anymore because of all the video on demand and streaming in this country. A lot of the foreign markets have just taken a dive. And so the second they know that you're going to be on VOD in the United States, there's a what is this VOD, you know, they don't. <laughs> so it's going to take a few years. But That's the French market. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, we like the theater. <laughs> Trust me, we did too. But, yeah. um, but focusing on making good content for whatever price the marketplace is saying it's currently worth uh, can be a real challenge. And so we made a movie for $3 million last year. We made a movie for a $1 million this spring. I had more fun on that million-dollar movie trying to score free deals and trying to make, you know, just really pay myself a little bit of money, not enough. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was a really creatively exciting experience. Um, and I don't think anybody, unless you just love it, uh, it's not gonna be worth it to you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're doing those movies now. It's like you started your, you kind of had the reverse career. Almost. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I, it'll come back around. Like I've actually just in these past few months been a couple, gotten a couple of studio offers, and um, and none of that happens quickly. Believe me, it's months and months and months until a studio greenlights a film. So you make all these little indies while you wait for that. But I have learned more filmmaking, about filmmaking, that's, that's the conversation Stephen and I had because I had done Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, uh, Amistad, Lost World, I'm having flashbacks, Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report AI. It was during the filming of Minority Report that he called me over to the monitor he's like, what's going on with you? And I, I was like, I need to make my own movies. Mm -hmm. I, First of all, I love that he noticed something was going on with me. He's like a father figure to me. And we, I went to his house that weekend and we sat down and we talked. And uh, I said, I didn't, I didn't move out here to do what I'm doing. I moved out here to make movies that I really love. And we talked through that. And he was like, well, then that's what you're going to do. And he gave me a deal at DreamWorks and a three-year time to develop <coughs> material, meet agents. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know anybody. I knew, like, <coughs> Mike Ovitz yeah. and Stephen's lawyer and five writers, you know. It, it's like Stephen doesn't really, you know, deal with agents. So I went around town, and he gave me that 
you know, baking time. It took me six months to read a script for with my own opinion and not reading for him. Mm -hmm. I'd spent so many wow. years reading for him. I was like, oh, right. I went back and rewatched all the movies I love, why I fell in love with movies. Like, I really, you know, the paycheck is not as big, but the happiness check is huge. It's big. Huge. Yeah. What is that story that interests you? That you want to, maybe not the story, but, but what is the thing that draws you that, that you want to tell? I think it, it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because it's, I've had people say to me what they think I'm attracted to and I kind of like the way I sound. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard for me to pinpoint it. What do they say? It's you. Well, it's usually <laughs> there is love somewhere there. It, there is a love factor. It's not necessarily a romance. It might be parent-child. It might be friends. It might be. Um, but there's there's the challenges in and around love and acceptance and. Uh, differences, like identity differences. You know, one of the first pieces of material that I could not take my eyes off of, and, and I'm PS on something I haven't seen before. Like to me, that was what I loved about going to the movies as a kid. Walking into a theater, lights go down, two hours of lives I will never meet on, in my daily life in a world I'll never see, with subjects I've never encountered, and walking out of there going, oh my gosh, I never, never thought about it that way. You know, mm -hmm. that was always very, there was a didactic nature to the stuff that I was attracted to. And I, um, Albert Knobs was a script that when I read it, I, I, I couldn't quit thinking about it. Well, first of all, I was shooting a little independent film called The Chum Scrubber, which was also a film, a dark comedy that I just was a great palate cleanser after my Spielberg years because I was just like, okay, this is just sick and I love it. And I, Glenn Close came and did a four days with us on that movie and she walked up to me with the Albert Knobs script and said, I must play this part on the big screen before I die. That's mm. what she said to me. So, I mean, I'm in. She's like, well, you should read it first. <laughs> no, no, seriously, that's enough. I'm good. Yeah. Big Glenn Close fan. Yeah, well, you guys um, work together a yeah, lot. Yeah, a lot, and big fan before that, and just and then ended up loving her as a as a friend as well. But she, um, I went home that night and read the script, and I couldn't. It was fascinating for a million different reasons, and then protosorally. I also knew we could make it for a price because 90% of it happened in one location. Now, it would be one set in a Spielberg movie, but I knew we could make it. I had enough experience to know what we could make that movie for and that we could. So that um, film business, film business. Mm -hmm. Art versus commerce. Right? Yeah. yeah, but, I, but it, that, that mix of uh, what am I looking at? I haven't seen this before. Love, identity. It, it plays a part in, in most, uh, most of the things that I 
gravitate to. Well, yeah, I think identity for you, uh, at least your identity, is is pretty non-stereotypical for yeah. Hollywood, right? I mean, yeah. you're a Christian woman. Yeah. What? You, but you also said that being Christian, you know, even though sometimes it's kind of Hollywood seems religion allergic, you know, mm -hmm. that was actually a boon. So I'd love to hear beings probably pretty unlike a lot of the people around you here. Was that a, a benefit or was it really tough being a woman? You, know, you hear that a lot. Well, it's I've got like a trifecta. I've got I'm, I'm gay. I'm a woman and I was raised Christian and, and still Christian. Um, they all exist in my body, so they must all be able to exist together. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> you're, you're the, you're the but, <laughs> I mean, so far you so good. You haven't been smitten let by me, let me know. <laughs> no, I all, you know, it's interesting. I was, I spent the first 22 years of my life hearing a lot of people make fun of gay people, um, make, you know, comments you could deem as racist. Um... And then I came out here and I heard a lot of people making fun of religion. Yeah. And um, I didn't like either side of that at all. And uh, Stephen, bless him, he was uh, very reliant on my religious upbringing just as a resource um, from you know, on, in Saving Private Ryan, there's a sniper who quotes scripture. Of course, before Barry Pepper. He, yeah. Barry Pepper. Yeah. So Stephen came down to my office and was like, I need, you know, I need some scriptures for this guy to say. Oh. And I was like, well, how many do you need? Then I called my mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> Your mother to Saving Private Ryan. That's yeah. a cool, yeah, yeah. That's well, great. and then like we're in Poland filming Schindler's List and Steve Zalian, I may get this a little bit contextually wrong. Zellian was working on Amistad. He was working on the script for Amistad. And um, there's a scene where one of the Africans uh, is learning the Bible. And he's got he's gotten his hands on a children's Bible. And it has pictures. And he's interpreting what he believes these pictures mean to one of his African friends. And there's a bit of humor in the scene, too, because they don't really... Like there's a shot of Jesus walking on water and he's going to, like his interpretation of it is like a child. And, uh, and I remember Stephen and Zalian. So Spielberg and Zalian come to me and say, what would that scene, what would that be? You know, because Zalian's, he'll be the first to tell you he's atheist and Stephen's Jewish. And this whole Jesus, like, well, it would they would speak as children would speak about it. And I remember getting some children's Bibles and calling a couple of people and just sort of giving some advice on what I, how I had been taught about it. And then of course them turning it into an incredible scene. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, I just remember not having to hide. I didn't have to hide. And I remember when I was, um, coming out of the closet when I'd figured out I was gay and I was going around and I was telling people. Was that here in Texas? That was here in LA. So was in I was about that. 25 years old. And, uh, and I remember Stephen saying to me again, what's going on with you? Are you okay? <laughs> well, I'm, I think I'm gay. And then, well, now you know that's not wrong, right? Sure. And, yeah. and just us having an extremely loving 
wonderful conversation um, about it that was very helpful to me. And I just remember being, um, work was a very healthy place for me. I could be myself. And in fact, and I really encourage this on film sets, in every production I do, you are of no value to me if you're not yourself. If you come in and try to make me happy and please me, I can do that for myself. I'm doing just fine. I need you to authentically be yourself so that you can actually add value to a situation, not just permeate what already exists. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, finding, you know, because you want to do the best job you can. It's that conciliatory then, thing you're talking about, yeah. though. You're muting your power, you know, you can't, unless, and that also, I would say, is, is the further complexity of the young filmmaker brought into the big studio situation because what the reason I love independent film and all my favorite films, all top ten, are writer director. Same guy and same guy and girl, and I think most of them are guys, unfortunately. Same human wrote and directed the film. Because it's of one voice. It's so authentic. I can sit in a movie and five, ten minutes in I can tell you that I'm absolutely not going to agree with this human's point of view, but man, am I along for the ride. Yeah. I'm in. This is fantastic. You know, and I don't, I don't judge it. I don't place any, I'm like, oh great, I'm going to get to see something that I haven't seen. So as a producer, I don't spend a lot of time trying to insert my own voice into a film because that's not my job. My job, if you're my director, my job is to help you permeate your best voice. And if I come in too much, it's a mess. Yeah. You know, Kathy Kennedy, some of the best advice she ever gave me as a producer is she says, she has been in situations where you get near the end of filming and you realize you've been making a different movie. <laughs> like, oh my God, I haven't been listening to this person. I, I, I thought I was. But I've been making a different movie. And it, and it ends up, and you know the movies, you've seen them. You're watching them, and then you go, well, that, they wouldn't have done that. <laughs> That's somebody's note. Yeah. You just mm -hmm. ran up against somebody's note who fought and fought and fought, and it... And it messes it up. Too many cooks in Too the many kitchen. cooks. The, too many cooks. Yeah. Which is what studios battle. You know, they're spending a lot of money. And they've got this young director who, you know, that's a, it's a hard balance. It's a miracle, a miracle a movie ever gets made. Yeah. And even more miracle, it does well. Yeah. Um, just to return the, uh, to the identity things, just really quickly, not to press on this. Press. Uh, press. I love what you say about you come being yourself. I mean, I really struggled with that when I moved out here. I had a job for an agent. Uh, in the Hollywood Hills, and I was about as different from, I mean, we were actually remarkably similar in terms of our actual identities, but like, we were very different people. And I really didn't understand what you're saying, which is that I could be myself and be accepted. I thought I, I completely tried to fit into like this mm -hmm. role that I was being in, and I found it very, you know, I was miserable all the time, wasn't doing a good job for him, it was just awkward and weird. So I think it's great advice to say like, just be yourself out there. That said, do you think that like a really hardcore 
Christian, Republican, right wing like person, could they, would that like get them fired early on, do you think? Not fired, but like maybe would it people be? It depends. Um, you know, uh, it depends. I mean, one can compartmentalize. Um, I don't. I don't think I've ever, I've worked with one very hardcore Republican Christian person. Uh, he was not revealing about that in the workplace. Um, he was revealing about it all over the place, <laughs> yeah. but he was not in a meeting shoving it down your throat. I, by the way, am not in a meeting shoving it down your throat yeah. at all yeah, I mean, yeah. right you yeah, know like I so it's not I'm not trying to you don't have to tell me I'm right so I'm not uh, I'm not gonna do that and I don't think but it, it's interesting because we were all aware that our political and religious differences exist and we pretty much knew who fell where but it was never, ever, ever brought into the space. But I will tell you, the second it was in a character in a movie, or the second it was some publicity nightmare had happened because somebody had written an article about something in the movie offending mm -hmm. a certain group, you bet we were picking up the phone going, okay, what, sh what do we do? Yeah. These are your people. What do we do? Yeah. You know? Then you the, ask. The, then yeah, yeah. you come in and, and, and we would talk about it. And it's interesting because it's also, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like that's your value there too. The thing, that, the thing that I might not necessarily agree with you about is probably going to end up being something I really need you for. In that At moment, some yeah. point in that moment. And I'm not in control. I don't know your past. I don't know your history. I don't know your journey. Like people ask me today, you know, well, you know, the church is so critical of homosexuality. How can you be, you know, profess to be a Christian and be gay? And I was like, for me to say that I'm not Christian would be like cutting off both my legs. Yeah. I went to church 13,720 times <laughs> by college. I counted once. How, how could you count that? Just it, by the days? It took a while. Yeah. You know, but by, well, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Wow. Chapel every day, you know, Tuesday night devotional. I mean, I was raised in a very yeah. staunch Bible Belt religion. And it's all I knew. So nothing, from my perspective, nothing was going on that was, you know, awful. It was great. I was having the time of my life. Loved my folks, loved my church, loved my friends, loved school. You know, it was all good. Yeah. So I, you know, I draw things from it that are, um, that are helpful to me now. And, and, and then it can be really valuable. I remember I was one of the times where I was really able to like pull out some biblical knowledge for business purposes was uh, we were putting a project together. I don't remember which film it was. But we were on the phone with a French financier who's very religious. And, uh, and he was talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. Some reference, you know, I don't, you know, probably lost on everyone in the room but me. And so I picked up on that 
And I said, well, would you like me to give them to you in birth order? <laughs> and I did. <laughs> Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Nephi, Joseph, Benjamin. Wow. And so, and he went, okay, well, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> here's the money. Close the deal, it. here's the money, we're making the movie. And I, and I literally was like, that's not, that's not some superpower. Yeah. It's like my filmmaker that I work a lot with, Ari Posen, um, he will, more often, you know, we'll be at a party or a dinner or something. He'll be like, do the books of the Bible, do the books of the Bible. Yeah. He's like, it's my party trick. But it's just, it's just part of who I am, you know? It, what's so inspiring about it is it seems like you've taken these things that many people think of as victimization and you've turned them into the exact opposite, which is really a, a benefit. Do you think, I mean, one thing you hear all the time is like women in Hollywood, it's much harder for women. Have you found that to be true? I got really, I was on a panel once. I felt like such a young idiot because uh, these women were talking about the glass ceiling and I was, mm -hmm. you know, just this brazen dummy from Texas working for Spielberg. I was like, I don't know anything about a glass ceiling. <laughs> and uh, and they, they had stories. Yeah. You know, they, they were actually quite nice to me, but they leaned down and they said, honey, we're glad that you don't, but it exists. And yeah. told me a lot of stories. And as I, uh, listen, we all have the path that we have. I have been very blessed and very lucky, and I have worked for incredible men who love women and love working with women. And I've worked with incredible women, you know, who've been benevolent and generous and, you know, and I've just never experienced, you know, some of the awful, horrific things that, that friends of mine have. So, I mean, I've come around, the statistics are what the statistics are. I mean, it's in black and white that, you know, there's an issue, but, um, but it hasn't happened to me. Well. It just hasn't. And I, uh, I wouldn't act very well if it did. Yeah. I, it would piss me off. Yeah. There's, uh, there was a call a few weeks ago where we got off and someone said, now you know the reason that happened to us is because we're women. And I, and I, and I thought, I, I see, I can see that, but I don't know. Yeah. But, but, but there's a lot of proof out there and there are women that I'm very grateful for who have broken through that. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, well, what, so what's going on now? What are you, uh, you, you, you did the indie thing? Well, I'm quitting film. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? I'm, I'm turning to the church. <laughs> I'm gonna preach. Yeah, yeah. No, we actually, it's funny, one of the, a year ago you wouldn't have heard me talk, well, you would have heard me bring up the religious upbringing a little bit. It has really been on my mind lately because we just made a movie last year where you and McGregor plays Jesus. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Written and directed by the gentleman that directed Albert Nobbs, Rodrigo Garcia. And I met Rodrigo um, while we were making Albert Nobbs and I met my current and forever producing partner Julie Lynn while making that movie. And Julie and I, um, we, uh, we love Rodrigo he, and he's just, he writes, he's constantly writing, he writes incredibly thought-provoking material and he brought us this script couple of years ago called Last Days in the Desert and he created a fictitious chapter in Jesus's life which occurs right after he's fasted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and he's about to begin his ministry. Now you already you've met me long enough now to know that I've already got a lot going on there like I'm 
I know the story inside and out. I know what's in the Bible in each gospel about that moment in Jesus' life. Not a lot. Nothing, right? Yeah. And so you're literally, it's not even talked about in one of them. And so you're, but you're literally, I'm reading it and I'm thinking to myself, business side, this is big business. Right well, now. of course, yeah. This faith-based yeah, crowd is huge. The, yeah. Now you start fictionalizing Christ and you get yourself into trouble. Um, but this is really respectful. And he was raised Catholic, Rodrigo was. He's, it's, he's a, it's a fascinating conversation as to what his beliefs are, searching like all of us. And then when Ewan signed on, I was like, well, that's perfect casting. And, you know, we went out in the desert and made it and um, sold it to a new company called Broad Green that is just one of the most exciting distributors right now. Mm. And it's coming out in the spring. So we, uh, it, that is, I'll spend a lot of time on that um, late fall, early next year on that release because I think we have something that could be a really great piece of business there as well. And it also happens to be, um, I wouldn't say I'm the expert in the room because we've hired companies that are much more, uh, much in the deeper end of that audience, but I certainly, know how the film affected me and I've showed enough people back home I don't think it's gonna offend anyone and in fact I think it's really intriguing so um, I'm excited about that and then we just filmed this movie The Sweet Life with Abigail Spencer and Chris Messina that Rob Sparrow directed. Rob's done a lot of theater and television this is his first feature theatrical feature and um, we are we just saw his cut last week so now we'll spend the next few weeks sort of shaping that and giving our notes. I love the editing room. I love it. I love, um, I'm not the producer that sits at the monitor while we're filming. I find it very tedious. I'm, I tend to be back at base camp figuring out what we're doing the next day or dealing with some big issue on the movie that is down the way, looking ahead, looking ahead. Julie loves to be at the monitor watching each thing. But then I'll take the drive home at night and I'll watch dailies yeah. and that's how I digest the film. So when we get into the cutting room and they start doing that, you know, I, uh, we gave our notes to the director yesterday and we'll do a few screenings with some inner friends and family and, and sort of mold and we'll submit it to Sundance and South by Southwest. So if we get into either of those festivals, that's where I'll be in January and March. Um, and then, you know, I'm freelance producer. I'm always looking for the next paycheck. Yeah. I mean, we have 20 projects, some in television. <coughs> and, uh, you know, Tuesday, you think it's going to be this one. Wednesday, you think it's going to be this one. Thursday, another horses, you know, and it's literally like, I mean, it's almost as consistent as my five-year-old, <laughs> who is not consistent <laughs> at all. I mean, we look at each other like, who is she? <laughs> but it's... Um, you know, I'm also really been looking into television because, again, for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, that's where all the content is headed. And, um, and we have a lot of our, a lot of our product is art house based. And that is a dying breed. Yeah. Nobody wants to admit it, but it's over, you know, Ooh. for now, by the way. 
Yeah. Everything's cyclical. It'll come back. It'll find. It always finds a way. Art finds a way somehow. It always finds a way. You know, I saw an interview Les Moonves did uh, a few months ago. They were talking about television, and he's like, "I'm not even calling it a television anymore. It's a monitor. <laughs> it's what screen? Yeah, it's, it's like I'm gonna, screen, I'm gonna yeah. stream. I'm gonna do. You know, yeah. I don't even like. I can't remember the last time I watched something on TV. I just stream it. Yeah, you mean like actually like tuned in for X? No, I no. never. I can't. Even my that. television, though, like I, I love television. I mean, I, I, there's a couple sitcoms I don't miss, but I just stream them. Yeah. The week after they've put my laptop up and. Yeah, do the thing. Yeah, and we've got a hard drive hooked to a big monitor. We just stream Netflix and Amazon and yeah, everything. That's it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, at this point, we like to open it up to the to the audience, the audience, the filmmakers. Anything? I was I was curious about the whole religious thing too because I grew up. You're the first person I've met with the Church of Christ. I grew up in Northwest Arkansas, same kind of situation. Ah. What is Church of Christ? Is that is it Protestant? Well, I say it's like it's Protestant and it's like Baptist. Mm-hmm. Ah. Church of Christ, at least the one I was raised in, there's baptism by immersion. No dan- dancing is frowned upon. Mm. Uh, there's no instrumental music. No stained glass. None of these things make you go to hell, by the way. It's just, I'm it's telling you the, the layout of yeah, the land. it's the culture. Um, but the, but the uh, very Puritan, but I lived in a household. We danced in yeah. my house and didn't drink. Didn't drink at all. I made up for that after I got out of here. <laughs> you drank all those years. <laughs> Just because you're like, hey, wait a minute. I'm Christian and I'm gay? Give me a shot at yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need a few years to, to get this figured out. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, but it's all I knew. Yeah. yeah it's cool. It would be different today for me because I would go home at night because I'm such an entertainment, you know, devourer. I would have turned on Glee or any number of shows now, I'm convinced. And I, because you say I keep my framing, like my parents raised me to just be this bizarrely confident human, yeah. like it's not normal. And I, I would watch, I know it would have happened to me. I would have watched Glee, I would have watched something, I would have been like, ooh, there I am, uh-huh. you know? Because that's what happened to me when I moved out here. I started to meet see yourself me yeah, yeah. yeah and I'd be like oh that's what's been going on and then all of a sudden everything in hindsight made sense yeah you know so but maybe if you hadn't grown up needing to be so confident you know in yourself do you think that maybe you wouldn't have been so unshakable like maybe it was like the adversity was good I guess is what I'm saying growing up no mm. Maybe. I've never really thought about it that way. It's interesting. I never, I mean, all I know is I never had, I didn't know, I didn't even, I didn't know any Jewish people. Yeah. Much less gay people. Yeah. I didn't know anybody but you that came little. here and suddenly, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Yeah, I'm working for Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. I'm here. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. No, but it was, I mean, it, it, I'm not going to lie to you, it hasn't been easy, but it certainly could have been a lot more difficult for me without the parents I have. Yeah, for sure. very solid. So, and that's so, you know, anyway, were that's another creative, interview. Were they 
Were they like my uh, my father did have a clarinet in the closet. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Yes, my uh, my mother in her world is extremely creative. She did a um, she did a puppet show. She produced a whole like puppet show at the church. It was all in and around the church, but it was a big production, and we had scripts and. I mean, that was, we put on a show every Wednesday night, and I was behind the scenes helping her do it. Yeah. So that was, and, and even just down to like parties and, you know, holidays, and it was always a production. Yeah. My so dad was cool. just paying for the party. Yeah. But that's cool. You learn that a lot sometimes. People, they come, they have like, their parents are in a community theater thing, and then they come here to do the... Very That's much so. Yeah. Like my mom was the one that was putting on the, the homecoming victory party at the school. Yeah. You know, and she was going to do it bigger than any year before. Yeah, yeah. So she had the outlet. Oh, yeah. yeah. A little bit there. Yeah. Cool. That'll wrap up our interview of Bonnie Curtis. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for coming in. Your insights were absolutely invaluable to all of us trying to make it in the film industry. Once again, this has been Gatekeepers, a podcast brought to you by Collaborator.com. Are you a video professional that needs work or are you a brand that needs video messaging? Collaborator is the online marketplace that connects companies to video professionals. Sign up today. Go to Collaborator.com. That's Collaborator with one L. Thank you very much. This is your host, Isaac Simpson, and we will see you next time.